Hello, and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy, and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. From climate to the economy and COVID-19, you would have to have lived under a rock for the past decade to have not registered the impact that scientific modelling plays in guiding public policy, decision-making, and even public discourse. But what are scientific models? How do they work? And when do they fail? In this episode of The P-Value, we look at model-based science and how simplified and idealised replicas of real-world systems can help us to understand and predict. One of the striking features of the COVID-19 pandemic was the prominent role played by scientific models in guiding public policy making. Also prominent to me as a philosopher of science was the lack of public literacy on how scientific models work, their limits and their power. What came through loud and clear was that despite their centrality to all sorts of key public policy challenges such as climate change, bushfire mitigation and conservation, the general public doesn't have a clear understanding of what scientific models are and what we can and can't explain with them. So what is a scientific model? Well, scientific models are representations of parts of the real world. These can be concrete, small-scale physical models of real systems. For example, the San Francisco Bay hydraulic model is literally a miniature version of the San Francisco Bay. Built by the US Army Corps, the model enabled researchers to evaluate the effectiveness of different dams in managing water flows in the system, ultimately abandoning some proposals as ineffectual. The San Francisco Bay model is, however, unusual. Most scientific models aren't concrete. Rather, they're abstract and mathematical in nature, or computational. For example, Many of the epidemiological models used to understand the spread of COVID-19 were mathematical, using functions such as exponential growth and differential equations to capture the dynamics of the pandemic. In between these two extremes, the concrete and the highly abstract, there are a variety of models that include more causal information, such as agent-based computer simulations, which are used to model the interactions of people in networks. In these models, Individual agents and their interactions with each other are represented and then simulations run on the movement of information or strategies through the population of agents via their interactions. This helps us to establish the likely dynamics of real-world populations. And such models can tell us about all sorts of things, from the spread of viruses to the spread of misinformation. Just like a traditional lab or experiment allows us to indirectly explore the nature of the real world, scientific models are replicas or microcosms of the real world we use to indirectly explore the nature of the world through intervention and manipulation. In this, models can tell us what the important features of real world systems are, how those features interact, and how they're likely to change in the future. They can also tell us how we can sexually alter those systems to our own ends. For example, We might change the value of a variable representing the likelihood of an infected individual passing on a virus to another individual in a mathematical model looking at the spread of a virus. This can help us to understand how a change to virulence of a virus will alter its rate of spread. 
Or we might change the connectivity of agents in an agent-based model to see how having more social connections changes how rapidly information moves through a population. Scientific models are extremely valuable because they make it possible for us to explore features of the real world that it's impossible or impractical to investigate properly in real-world systems themselves. For example, it's impossible for us to intervene on the global temperature to see what happens if we do raise global temperatures by a few degrees, as might be expected from human-induced climate change. But we can use scientific models of global weather systems and sea level dynamics to predict what will occur were such a temperature rise to happen. During the COVID-19 pandemic, many experimental interventions we might like to have investigated were possible in principle, but would have taken too long to perform given the pressing nature of the health emergency. For example, it would have been impractical and unethical to have delayed making public policy decisions on social distancing until we could have performed a randomised control trial, for example, of the measures, comparing different approaches. Instead, scientific modelling gave us a way to use data on infection rates from other countries, along with theory and other information, to make reasonable estimates on what impacts particular interventions would have on the transmission of the virus. Models are thus invaluable in situations like a pandemic, where time is key and we're interested in in phenomena that are large scale and thus expensive and time-consuming to investigate in the real world. While scientific models are extremely valuable and powerful as scientific tools, they have their limits. The usefulness of a scientific model is restricted by how well it predicts and represents the target phenomena. A model, for example, of the impacts of climate change on highly urbanised and densely populated European cities might not be appropriate for modelling the impacts on a sparsely populated city like Canberra, where I'm recording this podcast. The effectiveness of a model does not, however, always correlate with exactly how isomorphic or identical it is with the world. There's a well-known trade-off noted by biologist Richard Levins between generality and precision in model building. Really detailed modelling, such as highly specific models of a nutrient cycle in a particular piece of bushland, is likely to be able to make highly precise predictions about how things might change over time in that locale, but it's unlikely to give us such precise predictions about a patch of bush just nearby. On the other hand, a very simple model might apply to many cases, in other words, be very general, but it's unlikely to provide the sort of precision predictions that a more specific model could provide of a particular system. Consider the Loch of Volterra predator-prey model which shows how the numbers of two species, one predator, one prey, can change over time in a sort of boom-and-bust dynamic. This model's only useful for offering relatively low-precision insights on any given case, but it's general enough to offer a useful starting point on any system of predator and prey. Assuming the low-precision predictions of the model are sufficient for your purposes, generality may well win over specificity. The Loch of Volterra model is also interesting because it makes a number of assumptions which are not likely to hold for natural populations, such as that there is abundant food for the prey species, that the environment doesn't change, and that predators have unlimited appetite. In this sense, the model is what scientists call highly idealised. It's not intended to be an entirely truthful representation of the target system. 
Yet, the dynamic it predicts of fluctuating boom and bust populations of predators and prey has been seen in many natural systems, such as populations of lynx and snowshoe hare and in populations of moose and wolves. Now, this is not unusual for a scientific model. The San Francisco Bay model mentioned earlier, while horizontally to scale, is distorted on the vertical axis to ensure flow across shallow parts of the model. Importantly, this distortion is key to the model actually making useful predictions. To quote philosopher of science Peter Godfrey-Smith, scientists whose business is to understand the empirical world often spend their time considering things that are not known to be parts of that world. Standard examples are ideal gases and frictionless planes. But examples also include infinitely large populations in biology, neural networks which learn biologically unrealistic rules, and the wholly rational and self-interested agents of various social scientific models. In such situations, it's typically understood by scientists that these so-called false models are able to give true predictions, despite their unrealistic assumptions, because they retain the relevant structural similarities with the target system in the world, such that the idealizations and simplifications of the model do not matter for prediction. This does raise the question, however, of how similar a model must be to the target system to still be reliably informative. How can such extreme distortions, such as frictionless planes, still serve to inform? So when is similar similar enough? Well, in part, the answer to that question depends on interest. If the predictions or explanations we want to derive from a model need to be very fine-grained or precise, what makes for an acceptable model might differ from when we just want a coarse-grained understanding. Similarly, if we want a model that can apply to a class of situations, e.g. bushfires in eucalyptus forests, rather than model what's specific to a particular instance of the class, e.g. a bushfire in the eucalyptus forest on Black Mountain, our standard for what's similar enough will differ. One challenge of all this is that even in the best of circumstances, our models are likely to go wrong at least some of the time. This can be because of lack of information when building a model. In the case of COVID-19, for example, early models had to rely on very limited information about the nature of the virus and were more likely to be error-prone for this reason than those built following more experience and data. Errors can also arise because of the stochastic nature of the world. Climate models, for example, typically give a range of possible outcomes and their likelihood. While a model might say a two-degree temperature rise in the next 10 years is unlikely, this doesn't preclude such a rise occurring, and that such a rise did occur wouldn't necessarily undermine the strength of the model. If a two-degree rise was something seen as being possible, but unlikely. Ultimately, models are a key part of contemporary science. While they might seem very different to what we classify as traditional experimentation, in actual fact they're not. They're not all that different to a traditional experiment, particularly in biology. We might, for example, investigate the efficacy of a cancer drug intended for human patients by giving it to mice with tumours first. In that, we're assuming appropriate similarities between the mouse system and the human target system, such that we expect our intervention, a drug, to work similarly in us to how it works in the mice. 
Perhaps in the future we'll learn enough about biological systems to be able to build concrete or computational models that allow us to detect drugs without using live mice. While these models would clearly offer ethical benefits over the use of mice, how different would they be ontologically? Or in how they're related to the human target system? Both would appear to be representations or replicas of the target system, chosen to allow informative and specific interventions otherwise difficult or impossible to the target system. They are, in that case, arguably all models. You've been listening to The P-Value. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown. See you next time.